we are a very blessed people in many ways. I think about the physical blessings that we enjoy. I think about the blessing of where we live. And I think about the blessing we enjoy today to be able to assemble in a comfortable place on a beautiful day and to be able to have the encouragement of each and every one as we worship our God. We are truly blessed, however, when we think about having the Scriptures. And because of the Scriptures, we have presented to us not only what God wants us to do, how He wants us to live, but we have it exemplified in the lives of real people and real problems which they face. About 18 months ago, I decided I wanted to preach on some material that I had been reading in my daily Bible reading. And I have been reading through what is referred to as the minor prophets. The minor prophets are those that are a little bit shorter than the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But as you get to those others, beginning with Hosea, going through Malachi, you have those books which tend to be a little bit shorter and the powerful lessons that are in them. And the truth is, the prophets show how God wants His people to encounter sin. You see, they lived in a very sinful world, very much like the world you and I live in. And God would give these prophets a message that would say, Tell my people to do this. Live this way. Habakkuk was a man who struggled with sinfulness. Not necessarily in his own personal life, but what he saw in the lives of others. Lord willing, we're going to study three lessons from the book of Habakkuk. We're going to study this morning. Habakkuk is a troubled man. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about him being a teachable man. And then finally, to end up with him being a trembling man. Habakkuk means to embrace. Really, if you think about it, it means to hug. Someone embraces someone else and they hug them. They express their affection toward them. Habakkuk was a man who loved God and embraced God and all that that meant. But I believe Habakkuk also was very concerned with God's people. He was worried as he looked among the fellow believers of God and the children of Israel, and he would look and say, we're not what we ought to be, and he cared about them. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 9 and verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. The measure of any good prophet, the measure of any good spokesman for God is, does he care about, does he embrace God's people with love? And Habakkuk did. Here's what we're going to consider this morning. We're going to look, first of all, at verses 1 through 4 and look at the crimes of Judah. Habakkuk is going to look and see the things that they did that were contrary to God's will. And it's all right to call them crimes because it's a violation of his law. 
Number two, we're going to look at the coming judgment in verses 5 through 17. Where he will see the Babylonians come as God's judgment upon his people. But you know, one of the things that I'm concerned about as we study through this is that we don't think of it purely in terms of this is what happened to a people generations ago and not see it within ourselves and within our society and make some applications. So the third point will be a correlation to our time. Let's begin, first of all, with verses 1 through 4 again. Brother Chris read them for us very eloquently a few moments ago, but I want us to go back and I want you to focus with me and think about the crimes of Judah as you read through this with me. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. As you think about what Habakkuk is saying, he begins with this idea of how long. How long, God, are you going to allow this to happen? How long am I going to have to see it before you do something about it? When should God act? Habakkuk has that question in his mind. Lord, how long until you do something? For most of us, we think in our minds there is a time in which God should intervene. Does it ever bother you, as I will apply later as we look sometimes around ourselves and we see a people who are bent on backsliding? As we look around about us in our nation, which we sometimes used to call a Christian nation, where no longer do we prize and treasure God's word. In fact, it is treated as if it is a wicked stepchild that is no longer wished to be in our presence. When will God intervene in our society? Well, that's a question that can only be answered by revelation. Habakkuk didn't have the right answer. I don't have the right answer, nor do you. It's only when God reveals and says, enough, that God brings things to pass. But you see, Habakkuk was not the first to ask this question, nor will he be the last. When you get to the book of Revelation, you find that there were people who had served God diligently, and they had died as martyrs. And he began reading in verse 9 of Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, 
O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, were completed. They're asking the question, God, we have suffered the ultimate sacrifice of dying for you. When are you going to stop the killing from taking place? Do you ever wonder in your mind when we see abortion taking place and so many people are even fighting against the vote that was just recently held, when will people quit killing babies? When will God bring all of this to an end and say, no more? They pled with God saying, how long? I'd suggest to you that what you and I need to do is to read such passages as Psalms 37, verses 7 and 9. And David writes, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Don't let yourself be overwhelmed by that. You get to verse 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. The evildoers will be cut off. God will stop the sin. When? I don't know. That's not within my prerogative. What should I do? I should wait on the Lord and allow Him to do it in His own good time. But you see, Habakkuk rehearses before God the sins which he sees. God, this is what you are showing me. This is what my eyes are beholding. These are what my people are doing. And he talks about the iniquity you know, sometimes we read words in the Bible and we don't associate with a word what it really means. We just sort of read over it. The word iniquity as found in the Bible means an evildoer. In Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 2, And he said to me, Son of man, these men are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel to the city. Devise iniquity, they're thinking up evil things to do. And what Habakkuk is saying to God is, I see people thinking about the next thing they can do that is evil. Have you ever observed that in our society there's people who are taking advantage of others and they're sitting around thinking, what other scam can I pull Whatever the thing can I do to get advantage over someone else? And he said, you've made me see trouble. A real interesting word. It describes the labor and the toil that is involved in doing evil. And then it describes the misery that one experiences after that toil has taken place. The best place I could think of to illustrate it was Job chapter 4 and verse 8. Even as I have sinned, 
Those who plow in iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Plow in iniquity, doing evil, and then they sow trouble. They're sowing misery among those who are experiencing it. The word plundering. Someone uses the word plundering. What I tend to think of in my mind is someone breaks in your house and they plunder through everything that's in your house. They decide what they want to take and they take it and uh, you come home to find out that you have been robbed. However, you need to think not about that. You need to think about what occurs when one nation invades another nation's and they take plunder or booty with them. And they come in by violence and they kill people and they take their homes. They take their possessions. It is a violent destruction. Proverbs 21.7 says, The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. Violence. Where someone comes in and wickedly takes what's yours. And then strife. Strife is when people can't get along. It's when they they have controversies among them. If you go to Genesis chapter 13 and verse 7, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. You see, they were both trying to graze the same land. There wasn't enough, and so they couldn't get along had to separate. And what he said this does is it brings contentions. Contentions are those arguments that follow from strife. Proverbs 22.10, Cast out the scoffer and contentions will lead. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. So as you look, you see all these which were injustices to man. Somebody was arguing over something. Someone was violently taking something from someone else. Someone was creating trouble for them. Do we live in a troubled society? Well, sure we do. Do we face the kind of situations that Habakkuk describes? Most certainly. But these sins were sins of ignorance. Oh, but you say... How could they be ignorant? They had the prophets. They had the law of Moses. Amos 3, verses 9 and 10, Proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces of the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria, see great tumults in her midst and oppressed within her, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. They do not know to do right. I was trying to think of something I could use as a modern day situation that might help us understand the conditions that were going on. If you were to imagine being in some of the poverty-stricken projects of Los Angeles, or Chicago, or maybe even Memphis. And imagine having to grow up in that environment where there were gangs, 
who were planning what they were going to do to someone else. I want you to imagine someone who had to worry about being able to get from the grocery store to their home with their groceries without being shot or without being mugged and their money taken away from them so that those people could buy drugs or do whatever they wanted to with it. I want you to imagine a person growing up in that area. They don't know to do right. All they know is wrong because that's all that's ever been practiced in front of them. At this time, Habakkuk is looking around and he's saying, these people don't know to do right. And what follows from that, he says, the law is powerless. You think about what our legislators have tried to do to help people who are in places of poverty. They've tried to be able to give money to solve the problems, but they found out the money doesn't solve them. They've tried to be able to pass laws that would say, this is wrong or that is wrong, and the law is powerless. Romans 8 and verse 7 But the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. As long as people have carnal minds and they're thinking in worldly ways and they do not know the law of God, the solution for the crime problems, for the violence problems that our country faces is not in passing more laws or providing more money about preaching the truth. Romans 10 and verse 3 describes what happens if you have a vacuum of ignorance. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Psalm 119, 126, It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Do you see the parallels of Habakkuk crying out, David crying out, God's people crying out saying, Lord, when will you act? People no longer respect your law. The law is powerless. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe the law of God is powerful in our country And in our society today, and it's not the fact that the law doesn't have power. The fact is the respect for it. You see, what this brought with Habakkuk was disillusionment. Because he could look back and he could see God's hand involved in the world when people did things like this. The antediluvians. Anti means before. Diluvian means the flood. So the people before the flood or in the people of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You read in Genesis 6 and verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's all man thought about was wickedness and evil. And what did God do? He destroyed the world. 
Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. The Lord rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heavens. Genesis 19:28 talks about you could see the smoke rising as of a furnace. Habakkuk knew that whenever man's wickedness became great, God acted. Well, God, why have you not acted until now? Let me add one more piece to the puzzle and then we will move on. You had such a disastrous leadership. You look at the head of God's people was a man by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh was a wicked man who reigned for 55 years. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 9, So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. And then when you read in Jeremiah 6 and verse 13, Because from even the least of them... To the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the priest, prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. When you have a nation that is motivated by deceit and a nation that's motivated by greed and the leadership shows no respect, then you will not have respect even at the least. And that's what Habakkuk was looking at. And he was pleading with God, please do something. And God said, I'm going to. Which leads me now to the coming in judgment. I won't spend near as much time on this, but let's read verses 5 through 17. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For I indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and a hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than the evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as an eagle that hastens to its eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings. And princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then he changes his mind and transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing the power to his God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Why shall not die, O Lord? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment, O rock. You have marked them for correction. You are pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue 
when a wicked devours a person more righteous than he. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They all take up them up with a hook. They catch them in a net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay the nations without pity? God's message is watch. I'm going to act. You're going to see it. What you're going to see is the bow. Chaldeans, the Babylonians, are going to be used to exact God's punishment. For those of you who are historians who study at the time in which Habakkuk says this, the Chaldeans are not that great, powerful nation. God said, I'm raising them up. I'm going to put them in a place of prominence. And I want to tell you what kind of people they will be. He said they will be a bitter and a hasty nation. You know what a bitter person is? They're a person who they feel like life has mistreated them. Hasty means fast. One writer put it, they are ruthless and reckless. Have no respect for anyone else, no care for anyone else. He said they are terrible and dreadful. When you know what's coming, you know that here are a ruthless people who are going to rape the women. They're going to pillage the villages. They're going to kill the men. They're going to enslave the children. They're not a kind, peaceable nation. They're expansionist. They're taking land that is not theirs is what Habakkuk says. You may or may not have heard that tanks have already rolled into the Ukraine from Russia. Expansionist people, they want more land. They want more control. You see it here in this day. He says their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. They believe they answer to no one. They don't believe that they have a responsibility to answer to the world or the rest of the nation's And according to verse 11, if you use the American Standard, which I believe is the correct translation here, then he shall sweep as a wind and shall pass over and be guilty, even he whose might is his God. They look at themselves and say, our power gives us the right. It gives us the authority to do what we're doing. The Holman Bible Commentary had a sentence which I thought captured this really well, so I put it on the screen. Babylon had an irresistible military force. Nebuchadnezzar was a military genius with a well-equipped, highly motivated army. That's what they're facing. Habakkuk struggles with God's choice. He was a troubled man to start with because of the sin. Now he's a troubled man because of God's solution to it. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked 
devours a person more righteous than he. God, how can you use that wicked nation? Why not use a more righteous one? God knows what he's doing. Habakkuk struggles with the indiscriminate people being caught like fish. And by those who think so highly, he talks about him sacrificing to his dragnet. He looks at his power, the Babylonians do, and say, look, we can do what we want to with whomever we want to. For just a moment or two, now this will have to be quick. Let's relate this to our time. Now, as I have gone through, on purpose, I have characterize this as the nation in which we live. And if that is the way that you see Habakkuk and see it only as a nation among nations, then you will have missed the point. Because Judah was God's people. They were supposed to live better, be different, be better. And if you're going to make a parallel, you're going to have to talk about the holy nation, the church. Faithful Christians are often troubled by ungodly and unfaithful brethren. You see, if we're going to have a parallel and we're going to be troubled like Habakkuk is, it's not so much what we see in our world because... As 1 John 5 and verse 19 says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I'm not surprised what the world does. But folks, I am discouraged and depressed and disillusioned when I see my brethren live ungodly lives. That ought to make chills stand up on the back of your neck to realize he's talking about us. In 2 Timothy 4, Verse 9, Paul says, Be diligent to come to me quickly. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. You mean there are people who quit the Lord because they're caught up in worldliness? You better believe it. There are Christians, in name only, who worship their recreation, who worship their money. Paul said in verse 16, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. Sometimes when you stand up for what is right, everyone will fall away. They don't want the pressure. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 20 and 21, For I fear when I come, lest that I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall, not be, or shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbiting, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Do you mean that those who are God's people would practice lewdness? Paul said, I'm going to have to deal with this. Matthew 24, verse 12. And because of lawlessness, 
love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness. You remember the law is powerless? Because they've allowed the world to catch a hold of them. People's devotion has grown cold. Let me ask you just a direct question to each of us. Any of us feel like we're not what we ought to be? That our devotion to the Lord has grown cold? And that we're not living and showing the fervor that we ought to have as a Christian? Are we letting little personal things, these contentions, this strife, this jealousy, and things like that rule in our lives to the point where there's somebody grieving over the way we're living? It's a good thing that God doesn't allow me to make the decisions. Sometimes I think what I want to do is just really, really cloud up and rain over everybody's parade one day. But you see, what I have to make sure I do is realize that God is in control and respect Him. I'm going to just very briefly summarize this last one because of time. Right there before the Lord is going to ascend back, Peter and John are there. And Peter asks the question, Lord, what about him? Talking about John. And uh, God says to Peter, or Jesus says to Peter, if I will that he should remain till I come again, what is that to you? You follow me. Folks, here's the big point. Here's the, the message. I can't control the way you live, but I can control the way I live. And rather than being troubled about everyone else's failures, I need to focus on myself and make sure that I am not a failure. When we're troubled, we need to seek God through His Word and through prayer. John 14, verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus said, Don't be afraid. You're going to have trouble, but don't let it be afraid. Philippians 4, verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Make sure that you are the type of person that you ought to be. We're going to sing this invitation song. If you need to become a Christian, please come to the front. We'll assist you in being baptized for the remission of your sins. If you are a child of God and you know that your life needs some correction, God loves you. God wants you to come back. God wants to save you. But you've got to be willing to correct what's wrong in your life. Would you come while we're standing and